Welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on social media at iProperty Radio or indeed email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Rosie Webb, Senior Architect at Limerick City and County Council and Head of Urban Innovation. Now, Rosie, I'm so delighted to be joining you today because uh, we've known each other now for a little while. I'm so excited about the work you're doing in Limerick. Uh, so I'm delighted we have an opportunity to explore it today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Carol, and thanks very much for having me. Uh, Rosie, um, senior architects in Limerick City and County Council, so obviously that's that's a role that people will be familiar with. Head of Urban Regeneration, what does that look like? What, what is your job? Well, I, as a senior architect, unusually I work in the economic development department, and I came in really with the brief of looking at the revitalization of uh, particularly the city centre and the historic towns. Um, so my job, the section that I set up, which is actually called Urban Innovation, is, is a new section that was set up because we were successful in getting a couple of large funding streams that were targeted on the Georgian neighbourhood. So the, the department is a kind of multidisciplinary team. So we have uh, myself, I have another architect there, I have a number of planners, I have a uh, an energy engineer, and then we have uh, people who are working as kind of collaboration managers. So it's it's a new kind of a department, a new kind of service the local authorities is, is uh, engaged in. Well, um, obviously, there's some great work being done uh, because I was actually speaking to um, a property consultant uh, based in Dublin a couple of weeks ago for the show. And he talked about how Limerick could become the the, the uh, center of sustainability um, on the smart city side of things in Ireland. And I thought that was so exciting. So there's quite a bit of buzz about one program that you're operating um, in particular, the Smart City Exchange. So you might just give us a little bit of background about that. Yep. So the City Exchange Project is a European funded project and it's called the Horizon 2020 project. And uh, Limerick is really the first uh, city to, ha- to be a lighthouse city under that program. And the program is really about creating a positive energy block in the city uh, and then hopefully rolling that out to, to the district level and to the city and the, and, and the whole world. <laughs> and really what happens is you have kind of two, two cities who start a number of cities that follow and then the idea is more about replication how we do it in other places well and that's so important because we you know when we talk about innovation you know not everywhere is going to get the funding um the funding yeah. that is so vital to be able to try things and allow things to potentially fail so that you can learn from them and try more things what's really interesting here is that you're doing it um, you're doing it not on new properties. And, and that's where we've seen yeah. a lot of the energy initiatives happening in cities and around city blocks at the moment. It's been on new buildings. So you're actually going into very old buildings. Um, how is that yeah. working? Yeah, it's very challenging, Carol. I, I won't lie. It is very challenging, uh, partially because, you know, obviously there's the inherent aspects of trying to get the old fabric of the buildings up to the new energy ratings, but also because you're working with a lot of different properties, a lot of different property owners. And one of the issues with historic buildings is that the 
the property ownership becomes fragmented. And so really what we're trying to do is to get people to work together to enable groups of people working together. So that's very difficult. You know, it's, I often say to people, it's a bit like, um, you know, it's like, it's not like asking you to lose 10 pounds. It's like you saying, uh, Carol, you have to make me lose 10 pounds. <laughs> so what you're trying to do is activate and enable people to work that way. Um, but what I would say about the historic structure is that it is inherently uh, energy efficient. You know, just the the kind of high density um, uh, uh, sort of six story high terraced block is actually uh, quite a sustainable form. And uh, the Georgia neighborhood in particular was built in this kind of logical grid system that always took into, into account the energy needs. You know, so there were under, I don't, a lot of people don't know this, but under the streets of Georgian Limerick and Georgian Dublin, there are vaults that would have been where coal would have been delivered. And obviously, you know, fireplaces and people would have filled those in. Or, or, you know, that's how the building would have worked technologically. Um, and now we're trying to kind of repurpose that logic into the kind of new energy systems. So interestingly, in its form, it's very energy efficient. And I think once we can kind of crack the way of getting people to work together, it would be very easy to, to, to kind of bring that all uh, up, to, up to speed very quickly. See, I would imagine that um, given the given the focus on not just climate action at the moment, but also actually in revitalizing our city centres, this would seem on paper like an easy sell, but obviously all of these come at a cost. So in terms of getting all of the individual property owners to work together, how difficult was that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it's a continuing uh, difficulty. Um, but one of the ways that we're uh, tackling this is because we're We've set up a kind of one-stop shop. We've been fortunate enough to have a, a tax incentive that's active in that neighborhood. So the Living City Initiative is active there. And so we've been able to kind of make it easier for people to do all of the statutory work. So we have a one-stop shop in which we get everybody together at, at one place at the same time. So we have our conservation officer, our planner, our fire officer, ourselves talking about the tax incentive. We can then, you know, kind of tell people all at once what they have to do. They also have a, a face, a name, a person that they can contact. And then we begin to build up relationships with people and we, we can kind of do some matchmaking when we see there are things, say, within a block that makes sense. So we're kind of at that now. We just, last week, we had this City Engage Week. Uh, we've just taken on 24 energy champions. So different people from property owners to uh, just people who are interested, who might not even live in the area, focusing on things from as various as re renovating the properties to learning how to become a prosumer, to learning uh, maybe taking on some, let's say, uh, uh, e-mobility solutions themselves. And I think trying to kind of broadcast that out and you know, let people get in touch with each other really is, is how that works. And the block that you're dealing with at the moment, what is that made up of? Is it a mix of residential, commercial yeah, so the positive energy block is five buildings. Mm -hmm. So it's our kind of anchor tenant is Gardens International. And that's a, a lead gold standard building that was uh, recently done up by uh, um, Limerick 2030, our development company. And then there are four other participating uh, buildings in that. The, the post office, um, Rooney's Auctioneers, the Chamber of Commerce, and the uh, Youth uh, Services, the Limerick Youth Services. So together, all of those buildings have to have to. Uh, generate more energy than they're consuming and they're assisted by doing that with a by being part of a community grid 
district heating is something that's been explored a lot in Ireland. You know, we're seeing a project being talked about uh, using waste uh, heat coming from uh, data centres, say, in Tala. Have we an example of it working in Ireland yet? Um, I, I'm not too sure, Carol. And on our project, we're using... It's it's really more of a virtually created uh, exchange of energy. We have we have a we are intending to put in a river turbine uh, that will form part of the energy. Of course, part of the energy will be from actually just saving energy in each of the buildings, so retrofitting, but also trying to install as much PV panels as we can. And then the energy storage works through a community grid, which is a virtual system. So we have a we have a digital twin of the area, and we have a an energy company called Smart and Power working on how that. Uh, let's say that energy gets exchanged and how people might get the benefit of that energy. We don't have a particular district heating system in it, but we definitely think it is something that, you know, it will be one of the solutions going forward for climate change. Like we've recently designated that area and a a slightly larger area that includes the corporate station uh, quarter as a decarbonization zone. And we think one of the key projects that that we need to look at there is how we could enable something like a district heating system. Okay. Um, your role is a particularly interesting one because we are starting to see the emergence of uh, smart city departments with different focus and, and um, positive energy w- would be one side of that. But you're actually involved in urban regeneration as well. And I know that's a word that, you know, has really fallen fallen out of favour um, uh, amongst communities. And uh, I, I think that, that I don't think that's an Irish condition. I, I think it's a global condition. So you refer to it as urban revitalisation. Um, but, you know, we have this we have this prevailing problem in city centres and indeed in town centres of dereliction. You know, mm. it, it, has this been an issue for Limerick? Yeah, and and this is one of the reasons we decided to to target this area is because we knew in the in the in the Georgia neighborhood we had a, a lot of dereliction and vacancy. So we did a kind of survey before we started. There was a city center health check, and in this area, which is, I suppose it's it's we've defined the area uh, because it had most of the historic buildings, and I think there's a link there, right? So so there's about 23 city blocks, and that area is about something like 35 hectares. So there's about 24. 100 people living in there. And within that area, we identified that out of, there's something like 900 buildings there, but we had 92 fully vacant buildings in uh, 2018. And so we knew this was a problem and we knew that, you know, you know, there needs to be a proactive approach to it. So, so, you know, we've, like I said, we've, we've done this kind of carrot and stick approach where we we're putting out uh, derelict notices, but then we're also letting people know about the tax incentive, giving them some help. And we, we had a recent, we had an update to that survey and, and we, we found that we've had a 27% reduction in vacancy in those in those fully vacant buildings. You know, there could be additional vacancy that's being dealt with in buildings that were half vacant or, you know, just yeah. the upper floor is vacant. So we think that's a that's a good indicator that we're having an impact. 27, uh, 27% is huge, but yeah. what, what, what is the makeup of that, you know, how, who's who's coming into the area or is it people consuming more yeah. space? No, it's interesting. We have we have. So those are all quite small developments. And that's that's also, I think, one of the issues, Carol, is it's micro development. You know what I mean? You're talking about sort of individual Georgian buildings. So each of those buildings and we've had everything from we have a number of people doing uh, single family homes. 
people developing kind of executive residences, uh, you know, one and two bed apartments and studios. We also have, we have a kind of, a, it's been very interesting to see the kind of innovation and creati creativity in that kind of development area. Um, we, we have, we've managed to, uh, um, allow, you know, kind of, I suppose, activate some of the buildings ourselves with our own uh, social housing. So we have a housing first scheme that Peter McFerry Trust are doing in, in uh, two of the properties, um, which were previously owned by the OPW. So it's interesting. It was just really trying to get in touch with them. We also have a developer who's very actively working and pushing together people who want the tax incentive with, um, with let's say, long-term rental options. So again, Peter McVery Trust will be supporting a local developer to use the tax incentive to do up a couple of those buildings. And we think that we can also pivot that now into affordable. So I, this morning, the Affordable Housing Act is coming forward. So we think there'll be big opportunities to, to kind of to, to do that sort of creative uh, combination for things like affordable housing or key worker housing. And then we're also really interested in looking at some new models ourselves. So we're we're actively looking at the area of community-led housing, which is, is very new to Ireland, isn't being done. But how can we empower communities themselves to uh, become developers and managers of properties in the long term. So, so we're looking at that. It's it's very difficult, Carol, because there isn't really a, I think the, let's say the legislative and the regulatory environment isn't, isn't quite there yet. So we, we're looking at kind of stepped approaches to these things. But yes, there's, there's um, it's very much micro development. And maybe um, what I think what we think is that if we can get two property owners working together, that's a much better solution. And I suppose if you think about the way, I mean, Georgian, the Georgian uh, area was speculative when it was built, you know, in the 1780s. And people would have built sort of two or three properties together and then broken them up and sold them as family homes. And it's almost as if you need to do that reassembling of property, uh, you know, with, with these various property owners to get them working together. I think it's very positive that you're looking at this beyond the scope of what local authorities can do and really looking at the role that individual property owners have to play and indeed developers. In terms of new models, I think, you know, the, the more I explore, you know, I, I have a lot of partnerships working with organisations outside of Ireland uh, across a number of different continents. And one of the things I've seen is that, you know, we are quite focused and narrow focus um, in what we think works. And, you know, that's largely attributable to how things get funded as well. So yeah. when you talk about community-led housing, what do you mean? Sorry, just, just to explain, because I don't I don't understand the concept of community-led housing or what that might look like in Ireland. You know, do we do we have a picture of it working successfully somewhere else so we can say, okay, this is a model that might work for Ireland? Yeah, it's 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 been very much working recently in in London, and I think it was something that the Greater London Authority set up really to address the issue of affordable housing. And the way that they have done it is that they have set up these community hubs, and so they do have these groups that uh, you know give professional assistance and make small seed funding to to local groups to be able to develop these projects from the bottom up, if you like. Um, and they also have done something which is very interesting is they set up a small sites portal. So they are able to, you know, find these small sites that are either derelict or vacant, or people might even donate into the, into the, into the small sites portal that allows kind of small developers and small groups of, of uh, let's say community led housing groups to come together to make proposals for them. So it's very much, a, a, it's a kind of a new thing, I think in the UK, but probably most active in the last five years, because there was a localism act passed there. And that kind of, I suppose, made it 
a little bit more compulsory, I suppose, to, to begin to address these sort of things. We haven't had that sort of a, a, a top-down, um, let's say, uh, I suppose, instigation of it here, but there's certainly an interest in it. And I think there's a, a number of, um, let's say, research projects that are, are, are being funded uh, through uh, the housing agency and our own project through the uh, Department of Housing and Planning uh, and, lo and local government that have enabled us to kind of figure out how to do that here. And I think that's where we'd like to, to, to be a part of that effort. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting to put it in the context of tapping into smaller sites or underused space. You know, it's something that we've yeah. seen certainly across London, you know, 20 years ago and, and longer London was absolutely um, taking a, he a head start in this. You know, they were taking the lead. I remember uh, one of the first was it one of the underground Victorian bathrooms in Crystal Palace nearly 20 years ago converted into a one-bed apartment? Um, and mm. we actually worked with a local authority here to see if, if a similar approach could be taken. And we actually ran a competition that was where we got the community to actually report underused or unused sites yeah. in the city centre. And it was so interesting what we got because we wanted people to be creative. So we were getting things like derelict handball alleys and in under, yeah. um, you know, there was a lot of CIE ground like uh, on, under yeah. bridges and things like this. Uh, but it was really interesting to tap in. And, you know, this was coming from looking at London and how not just, you know, the these, um, you know, Victorian underground uh, bathrooms, but also things like, you know, at the time they were putting sleeper carriages, old old train carriages on city rooftops to create live work mm. units and things like that. And, and you know, this is genuinely going back more than a decade and a half ago. And there was such a sense of excitement about how a city could be opened up, how underused space, space could be reimagined. And there was a number of different initiatives, particularly around Dublin. I'm not so sure about Limerick. And and everything ran into policy problems. You know, there was issues with everything. You know, we, we couldn't mm. get engineers to sign off on buildings that would allow, um, you know, flat top buildings that would allow any sort of structure on top. And just there seems to be a oh. lot of um, systemic challenges to innovation and you know, so obviously as head of urban innovation, how are you getting around, you know, policy issues yeah, like that? It's interesting that, yeah, Carol, you, you mentioned that. And, and we are actually working with one of our companies in the City Exchange Project to Space Engagers who, who did a similar project here where they, they ran a, a, they had an app where people could report dereliction and vacancy. And we're working with them now in, in, in a whole system. I suppose it's an innovation ecosystem that we're, we're establishing through the City Exchange Project. And really what we do is we try to work with, uh, let's say, local groups, but also communities of interest and uh, innovators uh, and, uh, you know, uh, makers and all kinds of people like that to try to come up with solutions. So we've set up, we're setting up a citizen innovation lab um, and we have the let's say the, the Georgia neighborhood is designated as, as an innovation playground. And really what that allows us to do is to test out sort of new solutions together with the regulators. Um, and so for instance, the first version of that will be, uh, you know, the, the exchange of energy. So for instance, you can't sell energy back to the grid. Now under our regulations, we're working with the, the CRU and the, and also ESB who are our partners on this and ESB innovate to figure out how you would do that. What's, you know, how do you protect consumers 
in a, in a situation like that. Um, and so we're sort of a test bed. And so we're sort of setting ourselves up as the city itself becoming a living lab where people can test out solutions. And so we have in our first, we run an open call that uh, people can come forward with solutions in our first open call that we had, which was focused on laneways. We worked with a, a startup company called um, StreetSeek, who wanted to put in kind of citizen sensors to, to begin to measure things like um, footfall, air quality, that sort of thing. And interestingly, we, when we put that in, that was just about the time that COVID struck. So they had these sensors in, and what was interesting is that they could they could through that measure how well people were doing their social distancing which is something they hadn't predicted when they started. Um, we're also supporting a, a company called Safe Facility uh, through an SBIR program to look at solutions for fire safety in, in, in these old buildings. And the solution coming forward is, is very much a smart tech solution, which is you know, the idea of you know, how buildings could uh, certify themselves and how we might use that system to be a sort of in-between person between the the the, the let's say the regulatory landscape mm -hmm. and let's say the property owner themselves so that you get this service in between that that helps people to to report on compliance so we definitely think that that you know that those kind of digital systems so both the the digital twin that we have but also these uh, let's say these mapping platforms these processes that allow people to kind of propose solutions and then test them out together with these companies is kind of essential to kind of bringing those kind of new figuring out what the price we need and then just that thing that you're talking about, Carol, how does it get through a regulatory system? Or more importantly, how does the regulatory system change to enable those things? Um, so that, you know, that I think that's a it's a process-led thing, and it has to involve all these actors. It has to involve the local authority, these, these innovators themselves, but also the people who use it. So I think that's the real, let's say, differentiator is that we're trying to involve the people themselves who will use it. We're also involving the, all the academic, you know, so our partners are, uh, UL and, and this project, but we're also working with uh, the other third level institutions and, and trying to set up new training solutions. So one of the things we've discovered is that there's a real mismatch between historic properties and people who do up buildings for energy. So if you find someone who knows how to do up a historic project property, which is very particular way of doing it up because they have a different kind of construction than, than new cavity wall construction, they don't seem to know a lot about energy upgrades. And likewise, if you call someone in to do the energy upgrades to your old building, they will know very little about, you know, historic properties and how they need to be done. So we're now kind of targeting, uh, you know, let's say training programs around this for both professionals and um, and tradesmen. We're not doing it ourselves. We're working with the people yeah. who do that already. You know, the Heritage Council, the 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 let's say the you know the local institutes of technology. So we're really this kind of let's say in between. We're, you know, kind of enabler and, and kind of activator. In, yeah. In, that's our role in this. And it's important, I think, that the local authority does that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, you mentioned there about your work with one particular uh, prop tech startup and and um, on the on the fire and safety systems there uh, and how that was that was actually managed under the SBIR program. The SBIR program is such an important one because one of the things that I've mentioned to you previously and, and one thing I've been very vocal about is that PropTech, or, well, sorry, not just PropTech, obviously that's that's my interest, but um, startups, when trying to work with local authorities to innovate. And by the way, um, I, I think that 
that local authorities, much like established businesses, they need the innovation coming from startups who are exploring these interesting things. However, our public procurement process have been really weighted against these startups because while they're innovating something new, they clearly don't have the experience um, to qualify under public procurement uh, and tendering processes. So it's been it's been a really interesting dynamic um, to see how startups can work successfully, particularly with any uh, state agencies and actually be in a position then to deliver paid services. So I think the SBIR is probably one of the models that seems to be working. So just before we finish up today, you might just explain, you know, maybe if there's any innovators here who are at quite early stages of their business and therefore feel they might be big enough to approach a local authority. I presume you're very open to early stage startups who have interesting ideas, maybe that have yet to be proven. Um, maybe the testing environment or, or the, the 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 playground essentially mm-hmm. um, would be a good setup for them. Is there is there a process by which they can contact you and and get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, so I was talking about this innovation ecosystem that we've set up is that's the, we set, we run these city engage weeks at the moment, they are focused uh, purely on the positive energy block because that's, they're sponsored through the city, city exchange program. Um, But we hope to sustain that and, and, you know, really designating as part of the decarbonization zone, looking at the wider kind of climate change issues. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is we run these city engaged pro weeks. Uh, They have a number of activities that happen. We run those twice a year. And the idea of those city engaged weeks is to determine the, the, to get some ideas for what might be the topic of the next open call. So that's followed up by an open call. At the moment we have small pots of money. We have 20 grand to run three of those. So the first one, we had five companies that we supported. They each got five grand and they weren't just companies. They were also community groups and we asked them to team up as groups. And then uh, the last one that we've had was focused on renewable energy. So again, we've had, we're actually supporting six uh, groups in that. So we'll be doing another one. So we, we, we have a program of these open calls that we will be ramping up and, uh, and, you know, continuing to do over the next number of years. So absolutely. I mean, certainly anyone can contact us at urban innovation at limerick.ie. You can go on to limerick.ie, our website. And if you look in the Georgia neighborhood, you can contact us through there. And that also sets up the program for these city engaged weeks. So that's, I think, the way to kind of feed into the ideas of how the next open cost. So you were talking about procurement, Carol. And I think, you know, competitions are procurement. Do you know what I mean? And so these are small scale competitions that help to begin that that process where anyone can come in and they actually get supported both financially and through our assistance to try to kind of target that innovation where it's it's best placed I guess yeah I I think that's it's a it's a good system I'm so happy to see actually the the playing field being somewhat leveled so that startups can actually get involved so thank you so much for all the amazing work that you're doing and how can people follow along with the project you know particularly I think the positive energy district um you know I I think that that's one that that uh towns all around Ireland will be watching just to be able to learn from it so are the updates being shared publicly or how can people follow along yeah, so if they go to limerick.ie and if you put in city exchange, you'll find our our um, our page that you can follow. So you can you can join onto that and follow the the city exchange progress. Super, thanks a million. That was Rosie Webb, senior architect at Limerick City and County Council and head of urban innovation. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned.
93.9 Dublin South FM And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com So now I'm joined by Keith Ryan, co-founder and CEO of ScanQuo. Keith, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I can already tell by your background that you're in a slightly, uh, a slightly warmer location than Ireland. Indeed, indeed, Carol. And thanks for having me on as well. Um, yeah, I've been in Tenerife for the last seven months and uh, so, so unfortunate I've been on lockdown here where everything has been open. So um, very blessed to be here in a warm climate. And, um, you know, please God, when things lift up, we can go back to, you know, countries that be <laughs> like yeah, back home in yeah. Ireland and even back home to London as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So London is your base ordinarily, although I think most people will tell the Irish accent. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Waterford by Burton lived in Cork for many years and then uh, seven years ago moved to London to bring this vision and dream to life. Very good. <laughs> well, look, let's let's talk about this vision and this dream. So I mentioned there you're the co-founder and CEO of ScanQuo. So what mm-hmm. is ScanQuo? So basically where the name even derived from is, you know, I, I come from the cleaning industry and Carol, I've been involved in, in the industry all my life. And where ScanCo came from and the idea and the concept was seven years ago, um, I just got very disillusioned with the industry because such was the variance on how people price contracts or companies price contracts, you know, um, in the extremities from very expensive to actually um, not making any margin and even in some cases losing money just to win the contract, you know. So the brainchild was um, for me to identify could existing surveying 3D scanning technology that you would see on construction sites. Could they be brought internally to digitally uh, map the twin of the building? And of course they could. Now what ScanCore is doing is we are not um, reinventing the wheel with scanning technology. We are piggybacking off of the back of it to to identify the measurements that come from a a 3D scan, which is exacting to 99.9%. So with a lot of the time and motion studies that I've done within the cleaning industry, Carl, it's linking those algorithms to the exacting measurement to give the exact time for the cleaning task. So to, to build on the back of that as well, what we're doing with our technology, which is going to be the first of its kind globally, we are machine learning object recognition and we're auto detecting measurements of floors and we're also identifying the different floor surfaces from machine learning. So that's what's very exciting for me is to bring the science behind our industry. And there has never been a scientific approach to how contracts are priced. So it is very exciting for us to be, to become, our vision is to become the global benchmark and the first company through science and technology to achieve this. Okay, that, that's an exciting one, Keith. But how how big is this problem? Because I'm I'm conscious that you're saying that, you know, you became disillusioned by this, you know, seven years ago. So I'm thinking back seven years ago, you had probably just come through uh, the crash and, and the early years of recovery. And so what we saw back then was a lot of pricing across, uh, well, certainly across all sectors of the construction industry. Um, so I'm sure facilities management was quite similar, where we saw a lot of underpricing happening just so that people could keep their teams and keep going. And obviously we saw with some companies that the strategy backfired um, with catastrophic yes. impact. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the environment that you were in when you were mm-hmm. thinking about this. How big a problem was it? Yeah, you know, within the industry, it has always been super, super competitive, Carol. 
um, high volume, low margin business the cleaning industry is globally. And it's always been driven down by the corporates. And, you know, for the technology that we're looking to develop, we want to make it visible and transparent in what we're demonstrating to how it's priced and actually achieving some sustainable margins for the cleaning industry, because a lot of it is subjective as to how these contracts are being priced and how it's sold. And a lot of the times, a good salubrious cleaning companies sell the dream uh, extremely well. But then operationally, it falls down because it can't be delivered upon because it wasn't priced accurately in the first place. Okay. So this is what we're looking to bring. Very good. And I understand that for the last number of years, you've been on the technology side. But I presume the people that you're selling into, you know, they're still working on the ground. And, you know, over the past year, 14 months, how has this industry changed? You know, because, again, when we're looking at um, contract cleaning for commercial properties. We're talking about a lot of workplaces. Now, obviously, workplaces have meant something different in the last 12 to 14 months. But how have how has the approach to cleaning changed? You know, because we're seeing more mm. um, laser technology coming in. What's That's changed right. over the past 14 months? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question, Carl, because, you know, I do believe in the event uh, with the advent of COVID, this has shone a fantastic positive light on the cleaning industry, whereas before it was seen by a lot of people as a, a nice to have. But now it's seen as a necessity for healthy and sustainable buildings to look after the, the people's welfare and their health whilst they're at work. And, you know, within our benchmarking assessments, what we're actually building in is COVID touchpoint cleaning throughout the daytime for the corporates and, you know, giving the cleaning companies the visibility into the corporates as well and how that's delivered. So apart from us wanting to become a accurate global benchmark within cleaning, we're also factoring in COVID touchpoint assessments for sanitization protocols throughout the daytime as well. Can you just, I haven't heard that expression before, COVID touchpoint, what does that mean? What does that look like for, um, you know, people? I, I'm conscious at the moment that, you know, our audience is primarily one um, across the planning, construction, property and prop tech sectors. Um, and facilities management is one that, you know, similar to what you were, how you described contract cleaning, you know, it's, it's a high volume, low margin. And at the moment, uh, asset managers are really under pressure, as are employers, how to safely bring their teams back into the workplace. You know, some jurisdictions are further ahead of us in this, but in Ireland, this is a this is an issue that people are tackling, you know, today, this week, this month. So how, you know, what are COVID touchpoint and, and what does that mean for facilities management and, and for employers? It's, yeah, good point, Carol. And not only is it an, an Irish problem, but it's a global problem. And, you know, so previously you would have cleaning regimes for cleaning surfaces. And of course, it's going to be factored in a slightly uh, higher time because you're actually cleaning, whereas now you're just disinfecting. So it's a spray of the surface rather than the clean. So there's going to be some less cleaning time with involved in the regimes. And it's very important from a hygiene perspective that you know each specific client have, will have different needs on having some certain touch points done, like handles of doors, entering buildings so forth reception desks and so forth as well security gates and touch, touch other touch points like the touch button on lifts as well mm -hmm. so this is what we're bringing very granular level of cleaning tasks or sorry sanitization tasks into the cleaning regime 
uh, on the benchmark. Okay, and you know, I know from the context of PropTech Ireland that we're seeing a huge, a huge increase in touchless technology. So we're seeing more contactless. Um, you know, whether it's for you know whether it's for elevators or entry and exit from buildings so that you won't have to have these touch points you know so we're seeing technology become very prevalent but that's in newer buildings you know older buildings while they can of course be retrofitted that's not all going to happen you know in the next Mm. year in the next two years how are we seeing technology change your industry though you know because I, I'm I obviously we want to touch on the algorithm that your company has developed but on a broader on a you know kind of taking a broader view how has the contract cleaning be industry been impacted by technology um so you know it's very interesting uh, for me Carl because you know I was called, I came to London as I said seven years ago and it took me um, nearly four years to bring the concept and vision to life and, and of course, the cleaning industry, you could say, is very cynical um, in, in embracing new technology per se. And after those uh, four years, when I did get a Scanco off the ground, um, the industry was very reluctant to embrace what we were looking to bring the concept and the vision, the proof of concept of the algorithms, the scanning technology. And um, last year, within our projects that we delivered, um, out of the 11 projects, 10 of them were driven by the corporates, um, which is very interesting to note. So the corporates do have the agenda to drive technology and provide the visibility, transparency and accurate into pricing. So, of course, when we pitched in what we were looking to do, they very much took it on board. Um, and I'm delighted to say, Carol, this year alone, we flipped it completely on its head. Now we're working with one or two global cleaning organizations, and we're also working with some of the UK's leading cleaning companies also in delivering the technology of the concept of what we're looking to achieve. So it's becoming really exciting. So we do believe with this technology, the corporates will have our technology to keep their contractors honest in us benchmarking their services. Mm -hmm. And then from the cleaning company's perspective as well, you know, benchmarking by an independent company to keep them also honest and giving them the visibility and transparency into their into their clients. So we believe it's a, a double-sided coin for us in that uh, both both the corporates and the cleaning industry can benefit from our technology. Yeah, I'm delighted to hear that you are getting that market traction because you know we we speak to startups every every week here, and one of the things we know is that four years is not a long time to go from concept to market traction. You know, with companies that would take a lot longer than that. You know, and um, so from that point of view, well done because I understand the the challenge in getting it that far. And um, so that's amazing news. But just so that that I understand, um, what are the consequences of this not being done properly? So say for the industry, you know, what are the consequences of contracts not being priced right, whether they're being overpriced or underpriced? Why mm. why is that a problem? Um, the, the problem has always been is uh, the credibility of our sector, um, you know, because of the variance as well. And, you know, it pretty much goes around in a circle and they'll take on a new contractor to sort a dream. Um, it has problems from the get go. They renegotiate and uh, it's fixed for six months and then it falls down again. And it comes back down to, you know, for me, the key fundamental is because the margins are so low. 
-hmm. inadvertently some cleaning companies will not make up the surplus of last hours for whatever reason, be it employee absenteeism or on youth holidays and so forth as well. Um, to, to make that little bit of percentage extra margin on top. And I do believe, you know, if the corporate should take this into account when they're deciding on different um, cleaning companies as to the margin they're giving on the contract, because what I want to achieve for the industry globally is to make and show the visibility of sustainable profit margins um, for different types of contracts in, in within different sectors within the industry. Okay. I, I'm conscious when you started when you started thinking about this seven years ago, um, the scanning technology was it was in use, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So and um, so for example, today every new building being developed, I, I would say the vast majority of them will be handed over together with a digital twin of the building. Um, mm. So that's certainly not true of older buildings. However, we do know that in the longer term, um, every asset, every physical asset will need to have its digital asset um, to, pr to provide for good uh, facilities management. So seven years ago, that, that wasn't the situation. Are, you know, the algorithm you designed, can that work against um, any digital twin of a building? Yes, for any scanning technology that's out there. And we're using different types. Um, the different types that are out there is the Matterport uh, scanning technologies. There's Leica, there's blk to go and there's Anavis. And we're actually trying all out these different scanning technologies because we want our platform to integrate into these different technologies. So the algorithm still does link to them because each scan also getting a little bit technical now provides a point cloud data of which we map the automation piece in our technology from the scan. Okay, and um, I, I suppose just so that I'm clear, you know, it, it's good that you have the facilities to be able to do that if you're going into price a job. But if you're going into price a job on a building that already has a digital twin, does that mean you don't need to do any scanning? You can just work off the the digital twin and give. Absolutely accurate pricing on that. So then in terms of the AI that your own company is developing um, for, uh, you know, to identify uh, objects within a building, mm -hmm. you know, where where does that sit? How is that relevant here? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, uh, Carol. And it basically leads into the automation piece of what we're looking to achieve. So, you know, large contracts typically can vary between one month to 12 months, even to two years to, to price. Um, and with our technology, once our platform is built at the end of the year, you will be able to go on to our site and download the link to our platform. And in minutes, it will give you the benchmark results with the cool 3D visuals that you already get within the scanning technology. So from bringing, you know, uh, pricing contracts from months to minutes, it's a game changer for the industry. And this is where our machine learning and AI plays a huge part because we are identifying desks, tables and chairs, PC monitors, uh, keyboards, even mouses, light switches uh, in a room, um, room temperature control units. So the level of granularity because within a scan, it, every building has a specific DNA to that building. And currently within the industry at the moment is, just say, for example, there was two buildings, 100,000 square feet, 
typically they would be priced for the same amount of cleaning hours. My issue has always been, Carl, the DNA in those two buildings are always going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. So and how can the cleaning time be exactly the same? It ain't ever. It's going to be different. It's going to be some extra for the one building and less Mm -hmm. than the other building. So this is where the, the brainchild of the scan, which you're getting the specific DNA from every building to accurately price that contract is what we're bringing to the industry. And then in terms of global benchmarking, that's a huge ambition. So what kind of data do you need to be able to deliver on that? Yeah, and, and you know, Carl, within our our benchmarking and the pilots that we're doing at the moment, we are and have done pilots in APAC. We have done them in the States. We have done them in the Nordics. And we've done them from Europe as well. So with all of the different parts of the world, um, we are developing the data sets with more projects we do. And the more we do, the further fine-tuned the benchmark will become as well because you know, it's accepted as well um, within the cleaning industry globally. There is a level of pace that you work at, which is between one and five. <laughs> so in Europe, the pace is that you work at is set at three, which is the normal pace of work. Mm-hmm. And it's accepted within the Nordics that they work more productively and they work between three and a half to four percent. And down in APAC, it's accepted that they do work less productively and it's roughly one and a half to two, so a lot less productive. So within our benchmark as well, Carol, we factor in the ratings of the pace that each of those operatives work as two as well. So again, it's another unique function that we are bringing to the table. Um, it's not something new, but we're factoring it in with the benchmark. And then also, uh, Carol, within our benchmark also, and it's another global first, we are factoring in the work times that you work at between tasks as well. So, you know, some of the projects we've done um, recently, there's an hour and 42 minutes a day work time. And for some contracts, that can be the tipping point, whether a a cleaning contract is profitable or not. So, and again, by us factoring this equation into the working time between cleaning tasks, it's bringing the vision or, yeah, a level of granularity that's new to the industry that people have never seen, which of course, when, you know, as a cleaning, if I was a cleaning company provider and I was demonstrating to my client that I was factoring in the walking time between cleaning tasks and also factoring in the setup time when you start for work every day, 10 minutes, and also the close off time, which is five minutes per operative as well. It's three elements, the cleaning algorithms, the walk time between cleaning tasks and the setup and finish time as well. That's amazing. Is it too early to ask? And I'm sorry, I know we have to finish up, but I'm really fascinated about this because um, this is one of the areas across facilities management that we haven't seen innovating. And and the fact that you can take a task that was manually taking months and reduce it to minutes. I mean, that's the goal of of digital transformation. That's the goal of introducing technologies um, to industries like this. You know, so then being able to benchmark, you know, I, I actually think that you're potentially opening up so many other areas for other uh, property technology um, startups to, to mm-hmm. piggyback on what you're doing then, because you're going to be opening up all of these little key areas of opportunity. Um, but in terms of where you're at at the moment, do you have data yet? You know, or have you been able to show findings on, you know, any particular big um yeah. 
any big projects? Do you have case studies at this stage or is it too early? Yes, we have many case studies. And on average, we are showing cost savings, uh, Carol, 10% and above um, within the benchmark. That's huge. Uh, what's the margin? What's the margin for, uh, you know, what would be the typical margin of this business? Oh, um, like if you had a half million pounds contract annually, um, you were talking three, four uh, percent profit margin on that contract. So it's quite low per se. Yeah. So that's what I mean. So 10 percent of that is significant. Correct. Look, it's really interesting. It's really interesting stuff. And, you know, and I'm sorry, we need to kind of finish up here because I think actually, again, you're opening up so many other areas of opportunity that I think um, other technology providers will be able to to come in and and, and give tweaks on that. In terms of next steps of innovation for for ScanQuo, you know, what, what are you looking at next in terms of innovation? Yeah, it's it's so interesting, Carl, because on our roadmap, uh, on the immediate future, is asset tracking from a scan. And we know there's only one or two globally doing it at the moment, and it's on our roadmap to build out that module as well. But not only that, because when you have this scan data, you have all of you know the internal of the building of the twin. So we can do workspace utilization. We are going to tag on HVAC, you know, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, the lifecycle project from a scan. Um, what else? Painting and decorating. We know the surface measurement of the wall. We attach the amount of paint that it needs to the wall, the amount of time that it takes the painter to paint it and put the overhead costs in there as well. So that, you know, mechanic and electrical. So there's eight other modules that we're going to build on in the platform. And of course, we are going to bring in the industry expertise to the platform when we're building each of those modules as well. So it's really exciting times. And says me... <laughs> Um, our platform will have so many different revenue generating models. If there's any investors out there listening, yes, we're looking for money. <laughs> um, yeah. We're happy to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, I think it's a really interesting one. And given the challenges of pricing jobs across all spectrum, I can see that the model is one that can work far outside of the sector you've designed it for, um, You know, which again is always the pinnacle of innovation and transformation when we're looking at that. You know, in fact, actually just earlier today, I was having a conversation with somebody, you know, and about the whole spheres of innovation across it all, it tends to fall into three buckets. And those buckets are, you can innovate the product or the service, you can innovate how you're delivering, or you innovate the business model underpinning it. And if you can in, innovate the business model underpinning it. You know, this is where mm. you see the really transformative change. Yes. Um, and that's what I think you're touching on here. So um, mm-hmm. it's definitely going to be an exciting one to watch. So mm-hmm. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today and continued success for the business. Um, it's great that you're building it in London. Obviously, we would have loved if you had been in a position if the ecosystem was developed enough to build it in Ireland. You know, it's a challenge that we we have and it's one that we're genuinely working to address. Um, But thank you so much. That was Keith Ryan, co-founder and CEO of ScanPro. And that's it from us this week. Thank you for listening to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. Uh, You can get in touch with the show on social media at iPropertyRadio or indeed email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to Peter Rice on Sound. We're back at the same time next week. From myself, Carol Talon and all the team here, stay safe.